Sadly, Los Altos Institute has lost episode four of the Holy American Empire, covering the biblical kingdoms of Judea and Israel. So we pick up with uh, the next episode, episode five, uh, Christianity, Islam, and the State in the Middle Ages. I don't know a soul who's not been battered I don't have a friend who feels at ease I don't know a dream that's not been shattered Or driven to its knees Oh, but it's alright, it's alright we lived so well, so long Still when I think of the road we're traveling on I wonder what's gone wrong I can't help it, I wonder what's gone wrong Well, let me start um, the story in kind of a funny spot So, um in uh, 2007, when I visited Ethiopia, you, um, you know, you talk to folks, you um, learn what distinctive opinions people have. I talked a little bit about their distinctive Bible and, you know, the, uh, you know, that guy saying, so your Bible, it has, doesn't have that guy named No, where he put all the animals on the boat. It's like, yeah, we got that story. But then, of course, they're very surprised to know that we don't have the story about Jesus being bullied in school and animating a bunch of clay birds to kill the school bullies. And so we know that there's like, there's a different historical track that Ethiopia is on. Uh, one of the things that was interesting about being there um, the year that um, George W. Bush's popularity dropped below the 30s, right? He was less popular in the United States than Donald Trump was at any time. Uh, it's uh, rather shocking to think that Donald Trump's lowest level of popularity in America is higher than the lowest level of popularity of Bill Clinton, Ronald Reagan, George W. Bush, George H. W. Bush, Jimmy Carter, Richard Nixon, um, all of those people became more unpopular than Wait Donald Trump at his most unpopular. Are you saying the basement for Donald Trump, the absolute lowest basement for Donald Trump was better than the basement for any of those other guys? Correct. 13 points better than George W. Bush's. Trump's lowest poll standing, 36. George W. Bush's, 23. Nixon's, 14. Uh, Clinton at his lowest, um, also uh, uh, in the, uh, I think it was 32, uh, et cetera. So, you know, sometimes we forget how unpopular people who aren't Donald Trump have been. Uh, and of course, uh, going into his last years, George W. Bush was um, so unpopular, the people of Louisiana had elected a Democrat to the Senate, all kinds of crazy stuff was happening. And um, so 
I thought I would ask folks opinions of this because we watched like Barack Obama launch his campaign uh, in Ethiopia, Larry King live. That was that was neat. Um, and uh, George W. Bush turned out to be very popular in Ethiopia um, because um, he had finally fulfilled um, what it is that um, Ethiopians had sought from the West um, for centuries, which was massive military aid. Um, a lot of tanks that drove into Somalia were gifts of George W. Bush. And the Ethiopian, to the Ethiopian people, this made sense. He was doing his job as the emperor in giving military aid to the other Christian states of the world to kill Muslims. Uh, and Ethiopia, of course, had a, an intermittent set of wars with Somalia over primarily religious questions. Um, Muslim Christian conflict had uh, really colored the Eritrean independence war, etc. And so there was this sense that Bush was fulfilling the historic obligation that the emperor had traditionally shirked and that Bush was finally stepping up. Now, of course, some of this tells us something important about Ethiopia and its theory of nationhood. Um, the modern Ethiopian state is descended from a process that took place in the 1200s called the Solomonid Restoration. The Solomonid Restoration was the moment where a new dynasty took power in uh, Ethiopia and reconstituted Ethiopia as a country um, based on their unbroken line of succession all the way back to King Solomon. Since the third century, when Ethiopia had first converted to Christianity, this struck them as the logical way to understand their conversion. King Ezana had converted to Christianity in 226. And it's around this time that Ezana and his dynasty adopted this idea that they were the descendants of King Solomon and the Queen of Sheba through their son Menelik. And uh, this became a highly effective um, tool for to achieve a number of objectives in Ethiopia. Um, literacy, for one, it was um, Christian missionaries were the most, uh, some of the most sophisticated translators and linguists in the world at the time. And they came to Ethiopia, studied the language and built a, uh, an alphabet uh, and, a, uh, and uh, recorded a formal grammar for this language called Ge'ez. Uh, the script that is still used as the script in modern Ethiopia because it's a script tailor-made for the language uh, or a number of the languages, Tigray, Amharic, uh, the languages of Northwestern Ethiopia. So one of the first things that we see when we look at Aksum, as Ethiopia was then called in the 200s, when we look at Ethiopia, 
we can, we can really see what some of the practical reasons were for a state to take on Christianity. We've really, fo I focused in the last class on why individuals in the Roman state would join the Christian movement. But that's of course different than a state itself taking on Christianity and your motivations are different. But a key motivation that's the same is literacy. The, um, the fact that this religion is centered on a text, that reading is part of sacred practice, and with the exception of a certain period in the Middle Ages, Christianity has always been committed to the linguistic and cultural translation of its ideas to new environments. So um, that's something that uh, we might find a little surprising because of the legacy of the Reformation. But uh, this, um, so uh, another thing that was immediate, uh, that uh, became advantageous in adopting Christianity is that it comes with a priesthood. It comes with a much more regularized and regulated system of delivering things to people that secret societies and philosophies and religious cults struggled to mobilize the labor to deliver. The fact that you divide everything into geographic areas, you divide, you have a, yeah, you have a, a, a diocese, which is uh, based around a major city, and then you have little parishes for the rural centers, and you send educated employees into those rural centers to organize things like uh, food aid, famine relief, um, uh, and of course, magic. Um, those, uh, that makes a big difference. Uh, so there's this, uh, so it's not just about education, it's about having a structure that allows educated people to deliver services that are practical use in your community. And of course, what that means, if you have the same alphabet and if you have the same religious organization, it produces cohesion. It produces a level of uniformity and cohesion on your space. And it delivered very much because in Ethiopia, you have high mountain passes, you have valleys that are narrow and often culturally distinct. It is tough to maintain political order in an area through which it is hard to move people, never mind goods. And so this cohesion allowed Axum to continue to expand as a state until it reached a point where it was larger than present day Ethiopia, because it had crossed the Red Sea and annexed present-day Yemen. So here we have a state that, uh, so that's Aksum at its height. But Aksum, even when it was doing very badly, when it had to become Ethiopia in the 1200s, it had a peripatetic court because it couldn't afford a capital city. It didn't have the resources for it. It, had, it existed in all these straightened circumstances but it was able to produce a level of political cohesion and political authority in this area. And beginning in the fourth century, this produced other advantages. As other Christian states came into the world, um, alliance making could be organized around a shared Christianity. Uh, 
the early days of the Byzantine Empire, their number one ally was Axum down south on the Red Sea. And uh, that made a big difference. Now, here's some interesting stuff, though, about Axumite Christianity. Jews continued to live in Ethiopia and continued to enjoy minority rights. Um, the Axumites also ended up being a place that refugees who were religiously non-conforming could flee to. That is, of course, why Black people have a special status in Islam, because Muhammad's family was forced to flee to Aksum in the seventh century when it looked like Islam wasn't going to take off. And the, um, and the treatment they received from uh, in the city of Adulis from the Aksumites strongly conditioned um, Muhammad's friendliness to Christianity and his friendliness to African people as encoded in the Quran and as encoded in the Hadiths. But let's look at what Aksum and Ethiopia have never been. They have never claimed that their king represents God on earth. They claim that their king is descended from the prophets. Their king does have certain powers ecclesiastically, but the king is not the head of the Ethiopian Orthodox Church in the way that the Tsar is the head of the Russian Orthodox Church. Um, that's why the Ethiopian Orthodox Church did not experience a crisis following um, the end of uh, the Solomonid kings with Haile Selassie. Uh, in fact, the Rastafarians were the movement that was convinced of the divinity of Haile Selassie and not the church that Haile Selassie was a member of. So we don't, so we see that in Ethiopia, becoming a Christian state um, does not appear to reduce its religious pluralism. In fact, Ethiopia to this day has an old fashioned American kind of religious pluralism. It, there's no such thing as a church of one or a religion of one. That's liberal nonsense from the West. Um, but, you're, but there are towns that are Christian or Muslim or both. Uh, there are not a lot of instances of the call to prayer competing with church bells in Ethiopia because those things are usually going on in different towns. Uh, so there's a sort of municipal Christianity. Uh, so we see religious pluralism. We see um, no claims of the divinity of, uh, or rather the, of the representation of God in the person of the emperor. There is simply this idea that Ethiopia is one of a number of Christian states in the world. It considers itself to be among the most Christian of those many Christian states, but that opinion is uh, typically formed by observing levels of religious devotion to principles that are thought of as Christian. Uh, so you see a much more culturally Christian state in Ethiopia, but we don't see these big claims. We see all kinds of obvious advantages that Christianity could deliver a state 
being metabolized without any claim of being the holy empire. Now, Ethiopia has been, uh, because of its Christianity, has been the subject of Western aid for longer than any other state in the world. So the Portuguese uh, began their age of exploration looking for Ethiopia, believing it was a military superpower that would aid them in their war against Islam. When the Portuguese got to Ethiopia, there was a certain disappointment, obviously, that this was a state that was furiously fighting the Islamic emirates it had been at war with along its coast for 600 years. But the Portuguese response is an interesting one. Um, they did exactly the sort of stuff we associate with uh, do-gooders in the developing world up to the present day. Um, they uh, built the first bridge over the Blue Nile River. They built uh, Ethiopia a new capital in the city of Gondar in uh, the 17th century. Uh, they um, did all sorts of things, but they weren't they and Ethiopia's other patrons were never as enthusiastic with the guns and uh, other military hardware that had been the basis of other states' relations with um, uh, that. Um, and and this, this is an interesting thing. There was a consistent, yes, it's true that uh, the Portuguese sold arms to Ethiopia. The African arms trade is 2,800 years old. It's... Uh, uh, they're late to the game, but uh, those arms were generally sold at a profit. It was not based on the idea that they were outfitting Ethiopia to fight wars on their behalf. In part, I would argue that's because um, they understood there were already states in Europe that were for that, namely the recently defunct Byzantine Empire and the still going Holy Roman Empire. Now, that's one story of, um, of a state that is clearly Christian identified, and yet. Uh, a more dramatic example still, and one that I wanna use to, to lead into what happens in Rome, uh, we might think of, uh, might also consider the state of Kerala in uh, present day India. It is the most naturally radioactive place in the world. And that's just the beginning of interesting things about Kerala. Uh, it, is, um, it does not speak an Aryan language. It speaks Malayalam, a Dravidian language, ancient, ancient language group. Uh, and it has continuously elected um, every election since the 1940s, the Communist Party as uh, the uh, main rulers of Kerala. Uh, some people might argue that one of the reasons the communists are popular in Kerala is that one of the most important minorities there are a group of people known as the Martoma Christians. Now, the Thomas literature, Thomas sort of disappears. And of course, we know Thomas is a nickname like Peter. We know what Peter's real name is. It's Simon, but we don't know uh, Simon the Rock, right? These are organized crime names. 
Um, but we don't know whose twin Thomas was. But for many more creative minds, he's considered to be Jesus' twin. Uh, Thomas disappears in our narrative early in uh, the Luke Acts books. And um, he uh, appears to head off to parts east. And since the gospel is supposed to be spread to all these places outside of the Mediterranean, uh, the Martoma Christians believe that uh, Thomas the Apostle, um, Jesus' twin, came to India and established their church, and they guard his tomb, which is concurrently a Muslim, Christian, and Hindu shrine. Uh, the, uh, now, one of the things about the Martoma Christians is um, that... Um, Unlike other Christians in India, I got into an argument uh, about this, but uh, unlike other Christians in India, the Martoma Christians have always been covered by the Hindu code. There are two systems of law in present day India, uh, the Muslim code and the Hindu code. Um, and they cover things like family law, areas of law where your religion is likely to have a significant effect on you. Uh, so, that's great. There's an Indian Orthodox TV station in Atlanta. That is, that's a thing to, that's a thing to hold out hope for. Well, they're an interesting bunch. Um, they uh, were a very successful minority in India, navigated the caste system very well, ended up in the Vaisha caste as wealthy people, uh, the merchant class, uh, in part because they there are a bunch of Jewish traditions, right, that Christians drop. I went on and on about the surgery, but of course there's other stuff. There's the mixed fibers, there's the shellfish, blah, 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 blah. But there's a Jewish tradition that Christians have kept everywhere but India, which is um, that uh, uh, they don't patronize uh, the religious festivals of other religions. The Martoma Christians, on the other hand, felt that it was consistent with their theories of generosity and their displays of wealth to uh, patronize Hindu parades, festivals, and religious events. And so they were seen as just being like most Hindus, followers of some weird wisdom teacher who has his own take on Hinduism. Like that's the joy of Hinduism, right? You're just given a bunch of, um, you know, you're given a bunch of Lego and you're given multiple assembly instructions, right? You could build anything you want, really, um, as long as you don't start invalidating other people's gods and other people's movements. So the Martoma Christians quite happily um, sacrificed to Vishnu and uh, various other gods, not as their main god, but just, you know, to be good, polite, generous citizens, like the Bible says you should be. So, um, that absence of misanthropy or what the Romans called atheism, um, that ultimately screwed the Martoma Christians, but not for quite some time. It wasn't really until the 18th century that Christians began showing up, pointing at the Martomas and saying, you're not proper Christians. Uh, we're going to stop supporting you. 
The relationship with and recognition of the Martomas as an important Christian community goes away back. Um, they show up in the coronation documents of Alfred the Great when he becomes King of England in the eighth century. Um, Alfred the Great sends a whole bunch of gifts to the Martomas um, to um, uh, express admiration for their Christianity far away. Just in case you're wondering if we can date when British influence in India begins. Uh, so the Martomas um, were Christians, successful Christians existed within a Hindu majority host society. And Christianity again delivered for them many of the things it delivered for other people. It delivered cohesion, it delivered higher literacy rates, it delivered a literate culture, uh, all kinds of good stuff. And that involved simply not being in conflict with the state. So, I have to remember there's a plurality of models of being a Christian that are being pulled together in the present day, right? Just as Islamic fundamentalism is reducing the diversity of Islam, the sophistication of Islam, et cetera, the same process is going on in Christianity. And I would argue faster because Christians are less self-reflexive about what's happening to their religion. There's a lot of organizing against fundamentalism in the Muslim world that Christians could learn a thing or two from, but have not. Um, there's largely the response to fundamentalist dominance is for people to withdraw rather than to organize. And uh, that's obviously having some pretty pernicious effects. So when we look at the Roman world at the end of the third century, as I said last episode, pre-existing models of organization uh, were um, really out the window. There was no clear model as to what a, as to what Christianity meant to questions of of state and church. But at this time, we already have the Martomas living as Hindus in India. We already have a Christian state in the form of Axum before any of this stuff happens in the Roman world. What we have in the Roman world is this, is this inexorable demographic trend where Christians are becoming such a large portion of the population in some areas of the empire that attempts to persecute them are failing because there's no local enforcement because too many of the local people in law enforcement and government are Christians. And so this leads to, this is one of the forces that leads to the crisis at the end of the third century in Rome. We have to remember that Rome, that the Roman system is going into a tailspin in all kinds of ways when Diocletian assumes the throne. Now, Diocletian is an interesting character. He has a very strong quantitative organizational mind for looking at the empire and understanding what the structural forces are that are undermining it. One 
is that the energy economy of the empire has changed. That it had previously been a system that was using two main energy sources. It was using wheat and barley from the Nile. And if you flip, uh, if you flip uh, the Roman Empire 180 degrees, the other river that matters is the Rhone. The purpose of the Rhone is it's a navigable river that allows Rome to transport charcoal from the, uh, from the frontier to the city. And that's, of course, the other energy source that's needed, charcoal, because all through the Mediterranean, forestry protection legislation fails. The only way they have of really protecting large stands of trees um, from logging is to declare them sacred groves. And there's all this sacred grove poaching. Um, so the Mediterranean has, and it's experienced all this soil erosion, so it's hard to even have a forest at the Mediterranean. So there's this tremendous dependence on wood from the West. And what's happened is they've logged out too much of present day France. It is, and they're having to go further and further into Germany, down dubious rivers where they have no cities, no population that supports them um, to extract that charcoal. And that's, that means that the costs of recovering the charcoal exceed the amount of charcoal they're recovering. Now, of course, this creates all kinds of other problems. You know, obviously, if you show up in a territory with a bunch of armed men, um, cut down the forest and really have very little to offer people, um, they're not thrilled to see you, especially because the thing that we lose about Rome's northern frontier is that it's on fire all the time because they're making charcoal there. So they're there for the charcoal. And so you can see that like, this, this does not make you popular. This, uh, this big burning frontier full of like guys with iron weapons and uh, terrifying combat uh, abilities. And so Rome finds itself in more and more military and political conflicts with Germanic speaking peoples. Diocletian sees all that and he goes, oh, I see, although we started in the West, most emperors have been Greek speakers. Most citizens are Greek speakers. Most of the empire is Greek speaking. The Greek speaking region of this empire is in good shape. The West is only going to get worse. This is gonna be a basket case. So we need to sever the empire administratively so that the losses in the West don't take the East down because unlike Germanic forests, there is no soil depletion in the Nile. The Nile is still producing all the energy it was uh, millennia ago, thanks to the special properties of the Nile flood. So Diocletian cuts the empire in half. And uh, of course, that's, that's a thing we remember him for. The, uh, first moment when we can say there is a Byzantine empire and a Western empire is in 284 through 287 when Diocletian does this. Yes, it's totally like uh, the Canadian Pacific Rail situation. 
CP like went, uh, you know, actually the dodgiest part of this whole thing is uh, is the railway now. So we're going to buy the Fairmont hotel, hotel chain and leave our brand on this moribund thing, the railway. So, uh, yeah, so they leave their brand on the moribund part of the empire and they retool as this Greek speaking great power. What's another brilliant thing Diocletian does? Um, agricultural production outside of the Nile has fucking tanked. Uh, yes, the Federati are there. It, uh, it is true. We can absolutely um, compare the way the Germans are dealt into the system um, as, uh, yes, selling off some shares, letting, letting more vibrant sources of capital get in there. Because mysteriously, many people looking at all the, all the you know, soldiers and shit on fire went, I want to join this. This looks great. Uh, and the Federati, the Germans who decide that, figure out that Rome needs them, when Rome figures out it needs them, that's all facilitated. But we think about um, the next problem is this decline in agricultural production. People are urbanizing because there are good urban welfare programs. And um, the problem is that, uh, you know, a big Roman plantation just doesn't produce um, like one in the upper Tigris or upper Euphrates or lower Nile. You're, you're just not that. It's, uh, you know, agriculture has become a dodgy game. And with a lack of policing, a lack of enforcement, many people are voluntarily leaving the land, many plebeian sorts. Diocletian fixes that too. It is Diocletian who creates the signature aspect of feudalism, which is you tie free people to the land. Tying unfree people to the land, that's a no-brainer. You can do whatever you want with slaves. But to make a law that someone who is technically free can't leave their post, um, it's Diocletian who creates these feudal peasants uh, through Roman law. Uh, we often think of feudalism as discontinuous with the Roman order rather than a means by which the Roman order saved those aspects of itself that it could through these various uh, upsetting innovations. Diocletian diagnosed, uh, the next thing Diocletian noted was that in fact, um, if, uh, if we wanted agriculture to, um, to do better, and we, um, and we wanted to hold on to Egypt, given it's the empire's breadbasket. He did these two things that we might think of as contradictory until we look at like Canadian government policies in the 1970s or American government policy in the 1970s. He brought in a system of wage and price controls, um, which upsettingly were prophesied in uh, the book of Revelation that that probably did not help his popularity with Christians, that uh, wage and price controls look a lot like what the guy on the third horse is talking about, uh, more so than famine. It's specifically wage and price controls, if you read the book of Revelation. So you've got the wage and price controls, but then he also deregulates trade with Egypt so that shipping ceases to be regulated, 
um, that the prices of certain things can float. He cancels their reserve currency. So they build a monument to him, which inexplicably is called Pompey's Pillar, named for the guy who conquered Egypt rather than the guy whom it was built for. Uh, anyway, that's problem number two. Uh, that's, that's problem number three. The last of the great problems are the Christians. The Christians are undercutting the social contract. They're, they're large enough now that they're starving academies for, you know, resources. Uh, Christians don't pay their taxes properly. They don't participate in civic life properly. It's just a giant loophole that cannot stand. And Diocletian begins really the only significant persecution of Christians in the Roman Empire. And he replaces lots of local officials with people sent from the center so that his persecution orders are complied with. Now, what is this practically? So you're asked in these persecutions to make a sacrifice to one of the Roman gods and to deny Christianity. Those are the two things that you're supposed to do to avoid persecution. And if you don't do those things, you are killed. It's thought that out of probably three to four million Christians, Diocletian kills 10%. Uh, it's, it's an enormous number. But what does this mean in practical terms? What it means is that at the end of Diocletian's persecution, when he succeeded by Constantine, because Diocletian eventually admits defeat in that he can't fix the empire. He is the only Roman emperor to retire. He angrily grows cabbages for the next eight years of his life after retirement. And there's a building in uh, the town of Spalato or Split in uh, present-day Croatia, um, where he grew the uh, where he lived while growing those cabbages. Um, became very interested in like if he couldn't leave a successful Roman Empire behind, perhaps he could leave a very good variety of cabbage behind. But uh, he failed on that front as well. So Diocletian then leaves office and the next civil war begins. And it should not surprise us that all kinds of Christians are willing to volunteer to fight for the one Christian seeking the role of emperor in the civil war. Christians are highly motivated by the persecution, but there's a paradox to this. Christianity is now in the hands of moderates because the leadership class are the people who did sacrifice to the pagan gods, the people who did renounce Christianity. These, and so they replace a fairly inflexible, fairly extremist leadership class with a class that is both motivated to capture the state, but also willing to cut some corners in doing so. And that's very much the historical spirit that we, that we see in Constantine. And uh, this, um, so Constantine is an interesting figure. 
Um, I think like many people seeking a job like his, he um, goes to a lot of trouble to bring a lot of constituencies on board. So he doesn't, he's not fighting for the emperorship on an explicitly Christian ticket. But he's fairly public about the fact that um, he, his father was a Christian. He's probably a Christian, but he's also a member of the cult of Mithras, which was also a going concern at the time. It was a mystery cult based in the military. And uh, many soldiers joined it so that it punched way above its demographic weight. So Constantine's part of that, he's part of this, but he also has a clear mission once he becomes emperor, which is to do what Diocletian couldn't, to pull things back together and get the show back on the road. And it's an incremental, and so he sees the institution of Christianity as having that potential. But there are a number of things wrong with it. It does not have a stable leadership group. It doesn't have a clear head. Although its practices and scriptures are universal and widespread throughout the Roman world, um, it sucks at imposing discipline on its own members. And of course, Diocletian, I mean, uh, Constantine encounters it at this moment during the Donatist crisis. The question of whether to give people's office as bishop back after they've renounced the church and sacrificed to a pagan god. Obviously, the state's a little invested in the resolution of that crisis. We often date the Roman state's intervention in running Christianity to um, the, the Battle of Milvian Bridge or the Council of Nicaea. Certainly the Battle of Milvian Bridge is probably an apocryphal story. It's before the Council of Nicaea is only five years later, but the intervention in the Donatist controversy is before Nicaea. Uh, the state starts resourcing um, bishops who do business. Um, it they start receiving Roman state patronage even before Christianity is pulled in and becomes part of the apparatus of the Roman state. Now, this is important because there is a general agreement amongst the various Christian factions that the way you decide things is by church council, by getting the heads of the various bishops from the various cities together and hammering out some kind of agreement. Uh, when there isn't a general agreement. That's worked in the past, but it's worked largely regionally. There hasn't been an empire-wide church council or a Christendom-wide church council. The sponsorship of the safety and travel of those who get to Nicaea is obviously pretty important. And, constant, and then there's this question of why is Constantine the chair of this meeting? He's clearly the chairman, he's called the meeting, and it's mostly people that he's encouraged to arrive and people who haven't been killed. 
Um, one of the things about the Council of Nicaea is that it will periodically anathematize someone and um, the Roman state goes after them. So this church-state fusion doesn't begin as a doctrine, it begins as a practice. Before, there's a reason the government should enforce rules about, by Christians about heresy. The thing that happens first is that it does. Uh, and that's because who can attend the conference is um, something that Constantine can control. And so you can chase people out of the conference. You can bring people into the conference. This is, of course, the conference where we meet Santa Claus, um, St. Nicholas. Um, uh, it appears briefly in the historical record um, when he punches Arius, one of the more important voices at the conference. I, I and this is we have a little trouble with who St. Nicholas is, which is why when um, Recep Erdogan decided to try and sell us his bones, nobody would buy them. Uh, so the uh, government of Turkey still has St. Nicholas's bones from the fist fight. Uh, now, this all seems um, a little weird. Now, at this conference, there are these two positions the position of Arius and the position of Athanasius. Athanasius happens to be the bishop of the biggest Christian city on earth and um, Alexandria, which we've spoken before. Um, and so we have to remember that a lot of these conflicts are regional conflicts about power dressed up as conflicts about doctrine. A lot of these conflicts are conflicts about where the state stops and the church starts, and they're dressed up as conflicts about doctrine. So supposedly the thing people were debating for six years at the Council of Nicaea is this. Was there a moment when Jesus was not? It is the position of Arius that there was indeed a moment that Jesus was not at the beginning of time that first there was God, then there was Jesus. And Athanasius takes the position that, um, no, they came into being at the same moment because they are the same person. So that's one of the things they're fighting about at the, uh, or the same entity, not the same person. Uh, because of course they come up with the doctrine of the holy of God having three persons. Person meaning ma theatrical mask, not person. Uh, so God has these three theatrical masks. The masks aren't different ages than each other because it's the age of God, not the mask that we even care about. Anyway, this controversy for a while, Athanasius, there's a warrant for his death. He goes and hides with St. Antony in Egypt. It's all very exciting. And Constantine turns out brilliant military commander, shitty meeting chair. Um, Constantine is just trying to get uniform doctrine and he gives no shits about what it is. I don't know whether you've ever been in a meeting where the chair is too detached, where the chair actually doesn't know what's being talked about at the meeting, and then they attempt to forge compromises that are just word salad. Well, this is really like your ultimate corporate retreat. 
Um, Because that's what they come up with. They come up with the Nicene Creed, which is literally word salad. It is, it's a set of words and it's for the same thing as all kinds of word salad slogans are for. What it's for is to see who won't say the word salad because they're going to be trouble. It is a boundary maintenance thing. If you won't repeat the Nicene Creed, God knows what else you won't do. We're not going to find out. We're going to act preemptively. So Constantine hammers this out. And while this is going on, there has to be a doctrine developed for why Constantine is chairing the fucking conference. And the answer is that he is the last apostle. That's the doctrine they fashion. So the first thing... Like, like he's the like the hidden 13th? Yeah, he's number 13. Apostle. Yeah. Like, like he was always around like 300 years earlier? Well, no, because the apostles are not contemporaneous either. So... You can argue that um, that you've lost the first apostle by the time you add Paul. So there's already that precedent. So no, he's the last apostle. That is why now they walk it back eventually. The, 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 the title he finally ends up with is equal to the apostles and God's vice gerent on earth. So he is the equivalent of an apostle and it's um, and uh, and his the reason he has this special role is made as explicitly clear that it is his job to physically defend Christianity on Earth. Uh, now, at this time, there are five recognized popes. There are five recognized Christian sees. So you have. Um, the five special bishops who are popes, um, one in Rome, one in Jerusalem, one in Egypt, uh, in Alexandria, Rome, Jerusalem, Alexandria, Antioch. And these are justified because these are places that the different apostles lived. This also lets them get around another problem which is the need for the, for the Bishop of Constantinople at the center of the empire to be the most important Bishop. And so they, by making Constantine the 13th apostle, they make Constantinople a city that is a see of an apostle. And this then solves that problem. And then there are big, debates among the three main metropolitan, uh, the four main metropolitan bishops who will all eventually fall out. The first ones out are Antioch over uh, Nestorianism, then it's um, Alexandria over Monophysitism, and then it's uh, Rome. Uh, who for the first falls out with Constantinople in the 800s when um, a guy named Phocius is around. Now, Constantine is able to rule for some time. He is succeeded. Um, if we want to think of George W. Bush as the first true holy American empire, 
Um, he's succeeded by the equivalent of Barack Obama. He is succeeded by a guy who was raised Christian way out in the boondocks, who hates Christianity, thinks it's totally backward, um, and uh, that um, we need to rehabilitate the great institutions of Roman society. We need to bring back polytheism. We need to we need to fund the academies more. We and so it's this uh, Julian the Apostate, this Obama-like figure who appears to shore up all of the old imperial values by being this guy from the periphery who somehow, and, and, and he personally incarnates like the Roman dream of being a perfect Stoic, right? He's disciplined, he's continent, he runs his life well, he's um, well-read, well-spoken, he's the Roman dream, and he ultimately dies in battle, also the Roman dream. Uh, but interestingly, as with the Obama presidency, we can see that once the empire has taken this turn towards being a holy empire, many of the interventions that are designed to stop that actually accelerate it. Because what Julian the Apostate sets up is a dependence of the academies on the state. He strengthens the links between pagan education and the Roman state. And that means that when he is succeeded by a Christian, the true Christianization of the Roman Empire could begin. And we see this under Theodosius I and Theodosius II in particular, where the first thing that happens, we still haven't banned paganism. We haven't banned love of the gods. Paganism is the religion of rustic people. What Julian the Apostate called the old system or it was the love of the gods. We might also call it like Western Hinduism in terms of structurally how it worked. Um, so the next emperors nationalize the education system. That's effectively what they do. They socialize education, which decent move, but of course it's also a form of thought control. So what this does, though, is that all of the intellectuals in the empire who are running the philosophies have an opportunity to enter the Christian system at a high level to keep their jobs. And so it's here where Christianity suddenly metabolizes all of these cool intellectual tendencies, all of these ideas hammered out by Stoics and Pythagoreans and Platonists, and they're sucked into Christianity, not because Christianity chose to adopt those ideas, but because of the personnel who now populate the Christian intellectual world. So it's in this context then that the empire develops a Christian consciousness which produces its own set of political problems. Laura. Uh, can you give me some idea of what worship uh, being a Christian looked like? I mean, did they have um, Sunday church rituals, buildings, charities? Like what was the, I guess, what did it, did it resemble the Catholic church or what did it look like something else? I guess sort of everyday religion. Well, um, it's interesting. So forms of, um, 
So following the destruction of the Jerusalem temple, Christianity really gelled ritually, and it did so in a parasitic way on synagogues. The, um, it's the Pharisees who become the rabbinic movement during this time that develop this idea of getting a bunch of people together in a building, but not sacrificing anything. Having um, the center of worship is a set of ritual speech acts rather than physical sacrifice. Ritual, a lot of ritual, some ritual is moved inside buildings. Um, there remains a parades tradition that Christianity inherits, but it inherits a weaker version of the parade and it inherits it in a blotchy way. The Bible is pretty clear um, on, uh, on what the center of Christian worship is. You are supposed to get drunk and have pancakes. Uh, that's, uh, that's, that, that's obviously uh, what we're doing. That's the best way to remember Jesus, um, which tells you some good stuff about him, right? That, uh, I mean, I think it would be great, like if my friends thought that the best way to remember me was, um, you know, uh, drinking and pancakes, uh, that, that would be lovely. So we see, um, religious observance, it starts actually in a pretty non-magical way and the magic gets layered on with time. It accretes with time and people increasingly literalize um, the body of Christ and the blood of Christ and these ideas. Um, but initially you just, you have this, you have this sacred meal and the sacred meal is not an innovation by Christianity. But there's an interesting take on it, particularly the, the way you have this sort of client-server setup, where you have a priest through whom the meal is intermediated. He is the one giving you your bread. He's the one giving you your wine, rather than an equally scripturally legitimate approach would be to everybody just bring wine and bread and put it in a big pile. Um, enjoy other people's bread and wine. Uh, but that's not the way it goes. Of course, we live in a time when worship is seen to be the central religious act in an increasing number of religious traditions, which is profoundly unfortunate. The social justice yoga course that uh, we're doing in August is also going to address that. Um, that, uh, um, that so many of the things that churches and things like them traditionally did are things that have been taken up by the state or by other entities. We often think of religion as worship, but we probably had a pretty low level of church attendance at this time. Um, there, um, certainly the, the idea of the holy day of obligation and the fact that you're supposed to show up a certain number of Sundays a year, that's very late, that's like 12, 15. So it's often the keeners who were in church until about the ninth century when more people start grouping up there. Um, so, you know, when it becomes like the best way to get a break from your kids and whatever, you can just like put them with the other kids in church and hang out. Um, so many of the ideas and assumptions 
um, of the Holy Empire have to do uh, have to do with the interpretation of this role of equal to the apostles, vicegerent of God on earth. Interestingly, emperors after Constantine really. Um, oh, very interesting, RT. Yeah, I, I would think, and I mean, in many ways, the LDS church is the holdout. I mean, many of its claims to be original Christianity um, uh, are upsettingly accurate in some ways that, um, that the, you know, you've got this idea that there's all this service you're supposed to do. It's all within being a Christian. Um, and this, this church attendance is just a little part of it. Um, so what does it mean to be equal to the apostles, vicegerent of God on earth? Well, it means that whatever Christianity is, you have to police who isn't Christian. And that policing is increasingly focused on Christians. Uh, the, uh, this new Christian state chooses to keep all of the legal exemptions for Jews. They make no move to change how non-Christian Jews are living or what their legal rights are. They understand that that would be too disruptive to imperial pluralism, etc. However, if you are not a Jew, if you are, if you are either a pagan or you are a Christian, the government is very interested in how you conduct yourself religiously. Only if it is likely to lead to a regional uprising. So you see that whenever one particular Holy See steps out of line and isn't with Roman Constantinople, it's a priority to send the army to punish the people who are living the wrong way. And I have to emphasize this also is something that is taken on popularly. Romans, many Romans become very enthusiastic about their new identity. Their new identity does in fact achieve the social dividends that Constantine thought it would, that it would produce a certain kind of unity. However, it also produces a surprising amount of street violence over questions like, was there a moment that Jesus was not? Um, all kinds of like volunteers with rocks get in on the business. They, um, you know, people kill each other in the street over Christian theological questions because of course they're proxies for other questions in their society, but also because people are figuring out what their identity means. And so small differences of identity it's Paul Connerton, author of, um, no, it's Jonathan Z. Smith in, I think is the, the book, Imagining Religion, says that the most offensive form of difference is too much like us. The worst kind of different a person can be is too much like you. Michael. How about a, a little bit of uh, context here for... At this point, you know, the 300s or so, why was there so much ambiguity about, you know, like this question of was Jesus around at the dawn of time or how do we handle this Trinity idea or transubstantiate, like whatever. All of these things that they're fighting about, 
why was that so different than the paganism that they had been used to for a couple hundred years? Was there people getting into street fights about how to worship Zeus? Or was this kind of a new no, deal for them? Uh, no, because you had tremendous regional variation and diversity within paganism. So if we look at Herodotus, there's a striking line in, uh, in the histories where he talks about the, the, um, the temple of Poseidon in Memphis and how they do different things differently than they do at the temple of Poseidon in Athens. Um, there's essentially this sense that you're in a free religious marketplace. It's not your job to judge people from other towns. It's not your job to judge people um, worshiping other gods. Um, it simply isn't your business. In modern terms, it's like judging other people's private consumer choices. Only a minority of society is going to get mad if they discover that the sparkling water on the table was made with a soda street, right? People are screaming at each other about the Israel-Palestine conflict right now, but very few people are still going to turn down the soda from the soda stream. Um, we have a sense of that there are things in society where people have to be like us and things in society where people don't. And what Christianity is about at this time is that transition. There are a bunch of things where people didn't used to have to be like you and now they do. And that that's part of my, that's the crux of my question is why, since that wasn't what they were used to under the pagan system, why is it that when uh, Constantine says, now we have to all get together on one track, um, why did, why did people go along with that since there had been such a diverse number of different Christian sects with different beliefs and you know, you, you go with transubstantiation and I'll take half Trinity and they were doing okay for a while. But then all of a sudden it seems like there's this imposed from the top down uniformity and people are getting all excited about it. Well, and um, we see that um, people covertly practicing unorthodox forms of belief is very hard to kill off, right? People, um, a thousand years later, the church is still chasing down pagan practices that it doesn't like. So you have a lot of the population that doesn't take that seriously, or even if they do take it seriously, can't actually implement it. The term top-down I just had a, is, I'm sorry to interrupt. I yeah. just had a quick thought. This yeah. is like, this sounds like if you know that a bunch of people in the hinterland are really not going to be following these rules anyways, because you know that they're going to do their regional thing, but you bring in the rule saying you got to do it X, Y, Z, and you know a bunch of people aren't going to follow it, but you leave the rule on the books. So later on for political reasons or money reasons or whatever reason, that's the excuse you can use to go and invade their territory. Certainly there's an element of post facto justification there, but I want to argue that there's something a little different between top down and elite led. I would argue that this is a, an elite-led cultural change, and it's an urban elite-led cultural change, um, right? We are going through an urban elite-led cultural change, right? I was unable to hire a guest lecturer yesterday because we're in an urban elite-led cultural change. It's true that... Um, 
uh, the same uh, gender recognition policy that exists in a Vancouver school exists in a school in Prince George. But everybody here knows it's not going to be implemented. Nobody's actually going to enforce SOGI here. But if we look at it in an urban context, even though it's elite led, all kinds of people who have always been dissidents um, are really excited about the elite-led ideology, primarily because it gives them a new opportunity to condemn or report on or punish their neighbors. So you have to remember that this is a society that's simmering with resentment, uh, like any cosmopolitan society. Like that's just the flip side of, of you know, being an interesting, diverse place. And so if the, so you have a society that's simmering with resentment and you suddenly give people a new tool and elites model how to use that tool. Um, and they also tell you that if you use it, the army will be at your back, that you're not doing this all alone. You're not saying to, uh, you're not lobbying for me to be fired out of the blue. You're lobbying for, you know, your neighbor to be fired with the support of the state, with the enforcement of the state. And so we do see this primarily in the most diverse places, the most urban places, the places where people are already stressed by the cosmopolitan nature and pluralism of the Roman Empire. And they finally have a set of tools, a new set of tools for reducing that diversity, reducing that cosmopolitanism. And so I think it's more that elites, they, that Constantine starts this practice of using the army and the cops to enforce doctrine. And then, and then people can see that if there's a social consensus that backs the elite, you're gonna gain power, right? Deposing the popular Bishop of Alexandria um, who backs the Chalcedonian heresy or the monophysite heresy and replacing him with an Orthodox bishop, um, that's also a bunch of government jobs for a bunch of people. So if you're part of, if you're part of an Orthodox community and you're up against people you deem unorthodox, um, this is a very effective way of seizing their power and seizing their property. But I think that most people participating in these debates, they're simply, they're seeing a new way to be virtuous, right? Nobody who's trying to get me fired or whatever thinks that they're making a power play. They see me as lacking in a new form of civic virtue. Um, and a novel form of civic virtue, if you adopt it and someone else doesn't, you're going to harshly judge them, especially if the purpose of that form of civic virtue is in part to give you the equipment to judge your neighbor and find him wanting. So what you have are a lot of people discovering their principled belief in orthodoxy and playing that out and finding that this has a variety of social and economic payoffs if you're on the right side of fights about orthodoxy. But also it takes a while to get going. So I've actually telescoped things a bit. Constantine's in power by 311. Um, 
the nationalization or socialization of the academies is half a century later. The ban on paganism and unorthodox Christianity is a century after that. So we're at about 500 by this point before all of these pieces have really started locking into place. It's 451, the Council of Chalcedon, that decides that the monophysites are a problem and we have to replace pretty much the whole Egyptian church hierarchy. So the other thing that's happening is that this is a self-magnifying process, which ultimately starts hurting the empire. So this process of getting a more and more narrow, more and more complicated orthodoxy and using that to achieve loyalty and social control in an empire with far-flung pieces is going great as long as they're fighting the Persians because the Persians have modified their way of thinking about the gods into the proto-Zoroastrianism of the Sasanian Empire. They're starting to get in on the same kind of ideological game. But in the 600s, this all goes terribly wrong because Islam appears on the scene. And this, this use of orthodoxy for social and military control turns on the Roman Empire or the Eastern Roman Empire in a pretty catastrophic way. According to the doctrines of Muhammad, Christians are a protected class, just like Jews. You can't fuck with them. But also, as people you're not supposed to fuck with who are a protected class, you're as interested in Christian doctrine as you are in the Talmud. You're as interested in Christian doctrine as the Byzantine Empire is in the Talmud, i.e. not at all. Nobody's interested in the innovations of rabbinic Judaism and how they're being debated and how they're being considered and how they're being thought through. And the Muslims have that same level of disinterest in the various doctrinal fights of Christianity. And what this means is that once those armies from the Arabian Peninsula hit Christian territory, many cities open their gates. That if you are an unorthodox Christian, as the majority of Egyptians are, fling open the gates and the persecutions will end. The Muslims will be in charge and they will stop persecuting you for being a monophysite. When those armies get to Antioch, it's the same, into Syria, it's the same story. All of these um, uh, Christians associated with the Nestorian heresy open the gates of their cities and become a protected class under Muslim rule. And so, the Byzantine Empire is up against a thing that has many of its advantages and lacks some of its crucial weaknesses. When the Byzantine Empire takes territory back, it has to either expel or convert the Muslims in it. When the Muslim empires take territory, they can just leave the Christians be. They'll sort it out later. Many will convert to Islam anyway. 
But so what if it takes a thousand years as it did in Upper Egypt to get a Muslim majority through continuous Muslim rule? We've got time. And there's also that certain swagger of confidence that we see with the Umayyad Caliphate and the Abbasid Caliphate. This sense that their victory is inevitable, it's axiomatic, and uh, that God is on their side. There, and it takes quite a while for the holy empire that Byzantium has become to metabolize any of these innovations of Islam. Uh, they eventually figure out that if there's a territory that's majority Christian, but it's not Orthodox, you should leave it as a vassal state that pays tribute to you. They figure that out in Armenia, finally, that Armenia is happy to be their ally if they would just stop persecuting and killing Armenian churchmen whenever they want a war together. Uh, this seemed like an inefficient way to maintain the alliance. And the same is true with their relationship with the Aksumites in the seventh century. The sense that as long as this is a separate state, they can be our Christian allies, even though they are not Orthodox. But this problem of Orthodoxy means that the Byzantine Empire contracts because it is being outcompeted by another holy empire that is more pluralistic. One of the other features we see in Islam is that with the beginnings of the Umayyad Caliphate, the majority of people being ruled by Muslims are Christians for quite a while. The Islamic empires expand so much faster than Islam itself and beginning in the seventh century, we see this massive cultural importation, both from the Sasanian empire in Iran, which they've conquered, and from all of these areas that were under the control of the Eastern and Western Roman empires that they have conquered. And we see pretty direct importation of the idea of the emperor as vicegerent of God on earth. The difference is that in Sunni Islam, the emperor takes on the role that Constantine has in Eastern Orthodoxy and not the role that subsequent rulers take on. Subsequent rulers are pretty hands-off with doctrine and the like. Whereas in the Muslim world, um, a caliph, that being the equivalent title to czar, um, the, the caliph works very hard to educate his sons in doctrine, in theology, in these things, knowing that they will come into the role of leading and guiding the discussions of the clergy. In Shia Islam, you have the development of something like a denominational Christianity, like the Roman Catholic Church, uh, where you have a strong church and a strong state that um, 
are really uh, are um, are having to cooperate in certain areas, but there's a clear boundary. In Sunni Islam, we see something much more like the early stages of Eastern Orthodoxy, where the chief clerics who form the hadiths are selected by the caliph to form doctrine. So in this way, they also amplify another feature of Constantine, which is that whereas um, that the clergy who make decisions about what Islam is are those selected by the caliph rather than the representatives of specific geographic regions. So, but we have to acknowledge that Sunni Islam, the office of the caliph, the way hadiths work, all of that is a pretty direct importation from the early stages of the Byzantine Empire. Uh, and it's an amplification of certain features and a dialing down of others. Um, the problem of who is or isn't Muslim is one that Islam wrestles with because it doesn't have the clear kind of in out heresy, non-heresy binary that um, most Christianity does. Uh, there are always questions about are Sufis Muslims, are Druzes Muslims, are Alawites Muslims, uh, and no clear answer. Michael. Quick question on that. So uh, how is, like, isn't that early, early split between Sunni and Shia, um, like, how, how is that radically different than uh, all of the yelling about who's a Christian and who's not? You know, you've got a thousand years of Christians murdering each other over you not being the right type of Christian. So I, I got lost when you said... Oh, very simply, Muslims Michael, have... Shiites are Muslims, according to Sunnis. Sunnis are Muslims, according to Shiites. Okay. So if you are... Um, so according to, so you're not a heretic. If you believe in a different kind of Islam, it's not against the law and you're still understood to be a Muslim. It's only in marginal cases where you have a Muslim sect that has really weird practices. So one of the features of the Druze movement is they permit uh, drinking and in fact encourage binge drinking in a sacred calendar. Um, and some Muslims go, that's too far, they're not Muslims. And other Muslims go, yes, they are Muslims. But if you look at your quotes, mainline denominations in Islam, mm -hmm. um, there isn't the same sense that um, you have to persecute and use the power of the state to control what kind of Muslim someone is being. Okay, you so there, there wasn't a, uh, a long history of Shias and Sunnis butchering each other over a doctrine? Um, you certainly have moments when that happens, uh, but they're the exception rather than the rule. Hence okay. the Middle East today still having people, you know, not being partitioned religiously the way Europe is partitioned religiously. And I think you, you make the point very well though, that whereas Christian religious persecution tends to be elite led, 
Muslim religious persecution tends to be led from below rather than above. Uh, so there's more grassroots intolerance than there is elite intolerance. Whereas in Christianity, it's the opposite. There is more elite intolerance than grassroots intolerance. Uh, now, all this serves to set up the situation of Western Europe. Now, understanding why the Byzantine Empire is the Byzantine Empire, it makes a certain amount of sense, right? You can see there's a succession of decisions that people take. They do stuff, they're rewarded for it, it amplifies the process. But now we're gonna conclude in France where Clovis is, um, is a real help uh, during the uh, fourth century when they're trying to enforce the Nicene Creed because most of the other Germanic kings who become Christian are associated with the, the Arius movement, the people who believe there was a moment Jesus was not. So the Arius movement, um, they went over the Visigoths, the Ostrogoths, the Vandals, the Suevi, etc. But the Orthodox folks, as that's what this was called until the Orthodox and Catholics became different groups. Orthodox folks, um, Clovis went for that. And Clovis it begins this lineage of Merovingian kings who in many ways are like the kings of Ethiopia. Although they don't claim to be descended from Solomon, um, they imply they might be descended from a relative of Jesus. We're stuck with Holy Grail conspiracy theories for 2000 years as a result of that. Um, the Merovingians play around a little bit with that discourse. But what's, what's clear here is the Merovingians run France as a Christian kingdom with no concept of a Christian empire and an understanding that if there is a Christian empire, it is the Byzantine empire and it's the Byzantine empire's job to defend the West, to defend Christianity. That's the job of the czar over there in Constantinople. Uh, the Merovingians are succeeded by the Carolingians in, um, the, uh, in the eighth century. And a lot of the political cred and political capital that the Carolingians use for their seizure of power is Charles Martel's victory at the Battle of Poitiers. The first moment where the forces of Islam are stopped and driven back to the south. It's an impressive winning streak that Charles Martel interrupts um, after 78 years of everything folding in the face of a Muslim army to suddenly be there in Southern France. And this is the point where the wave breaks and rolls back. So one of the things that we often don't think about when we think about how the, Car how the Carolingians become holy emperors themselves is that it is tied to the narrative of the legitimacy of their dynasty. Charles Martel is a bastard. He is an illegitimate child. He has, and his, uh, and his lineage are the mayors of the palace under the Merovingians. They're not kings, right? Tolkien spends a lot of time griping about that in Lord of the Rings. Mardil, the steward, 
right, who doesn't choose to become king. Uh, they choose to become kings. They choose to usurp the Merovingians. And from the beginning then, the legitimacy of the Carolingians is associated with their fight against Islam. And we see that Charlemagne certainly pays for a lot of his wars by conquering East, by taking out the Avars and seizing about um, a third of the European money supply that the Avars had managed to collect. That pays the bills. Charlemagne has a long-term resentment against the Saxon people and conducts a brutal war of conquest in Saxony. But what makes Charlemagne and his project of expanding France popular at home is his annexation of the Spanish March. Uh, this is a well-remembered time when he exceeds what his grandfather, Charles Martel, was doing. He doesn't merely defeat the Muslims. Bye, Edward. Thanks for, uh, for hanging in. He doesn't merely defeat the Muslims. He, see, he begins the march on their territory. This is when, um, and the Song of Roland is about the stories of the conquest of the Spanish march, one of the most important pieces of medieval literature and one of the first translations J.R.R. Tolkien published. So nevertheless, Charlemagne, isn't really presented with the problem of being the Holy Roman Emperor until the ambush by the Pope. He seizes, he conquers the Italian peninsula, which is rich in many ways. And there's this question of what to do about the Pope. Um, here, the Bishop of Rome has been, the Bishop of Rome has been pretty productive spreading literacy, spreading conversion. There's a lot of stuff that Rome has been pushing out even as the city has collapsed and they've sold off major stoneworks um, for quarrying. So Rome is basically a quarry that's running these weird literacy programs uh, in the middle of nowhere and getting into strange doctrinal debates about Christianity. But it's also the place that has the best and most connections to the Byzantine Empire in the East. It's in Ravenna and Rome, where people are still part of that cultural and intellectual world. And so the Pope decides that he's going to create an equivalent to the Byzantine Emperor. Now, why might the Pope choose to do that? Well, I'll tell you what is going on at the same time where people do not recognize that these things are contemporaneous. You have the movement that will is most famously headed by Photius, um, the Pope of Constantinople, who puts forward a new uh, form of constitutional law. Byzantium doesn't really have a constitution. A constitution isn't really a category of law yet. Photius writes something called the Apanagogue, which is about how in the true empire, there are two swords, the doctrine of two swords, the sword of the state and the sword of the church. And that the sword of the church is wielded by the Pope, 
the sword of the state is wielded by the emperor and they have co-equal power. Foch's attempt essentially to annex the emperor's mandate of equal to the apostles and just leave the emperor with vicegerent of God on earth. There is no question that this movement by the Eastern Orthodox Church to annex power from the state back to itself helps to inform the Pope's decision in the West. There, he's thinking about a similar order in which he can do this magical ceremony, he can crown Charlemagne, and then he's the co-owner of Charlemagne's empire. Now, ultimately, uh, Photius doesn't do too well um, because there's no army behind Photius's sword. Um, Photius spends his life in and out of prison and never really achieves his goals. Photius's goals are really made manifest in the West. And it will be hundreds of years before they are. It will be hundreds of years before Emperor Barbarossa has to come to Rome and beg for the Pope's forgiveness to remove the anathema that's been placed on him, right? The, uh, but it's that Eastern Orthodox vision, the idea that the state gained all this power by fusing church and state. What if we took some of it back? That inspires the coronation of Charlemagne. And then Charlemagne has to ask the question, do I want to make this Pope my enemy? And he seriously considers making the Pope his enemy. He seriously considers not accepting the crown. He does not want to be fettered by some weirdo intellectual uh, from the far south co-running his empire. But in the end, it's considered, but in the end, the Pope gets out ahead of him. He announces the coronation. He brings in all the stuff for it. He places the maximum possible social pressure on Charlemagne to reluctantly become the Holy Roman Emperor, a role that he repents before his death and predicts will tear his empire apart. So I, uh, I wanna leave you guys there. I know we went a little long, but it's a crazy story. But the other thing that we, the, the lesson from the Charlemagne part of the story is really important to lay in before I let you go. And that lesson is don't assume that it's the emperor who wants this. It may be that the church needs this more than the emperor wants this. Because I think that is a very important characteristic to consider when we come to look at the United States. How much of this is what is demanded by evangelical Christians versus how much of this is some plot by the Bush dynasty. Okay, uh, questions, comments? We always need more time for the Merovingians. They're so crazy and weird. And uh, I'm really glad you snuck them in there for a few seconds. <laughs> well, it's, um, it's so funny when you read uh, the legitimating documents for the um, 
the Carol Engines, um, they parallel Japanese history at the same moment. That in both Japan and France, the emperors become prisoners of the mayor of the palace. Um, it's so strikingly contemporaneous that Paul Dutton, the leading expert on the Carol Engines in North America, spends a lot of time thinking about this, like why these two societies so far apart hit this same structural feature and then went the opposite way. In Japanese history, the mayor of the palace becomes the shogun and rules in the emperor's name and the name of the imprisoned emperor. And in the West, the, um, the shogun deposes the emperor and becomes the emperor. Uh, so, um, yeah, but in, uh, in the Carolingian propaganda, they talk about how it was so embarrassing to have the king moved about in an ox cart. And that this was like really, really fucking with their national pride. And uh, so they had to go. Ah, other stuff. Oh my goodness. Well, we've spun a yarn. We've lost, uh, we've lost a few people just as the rubber finally hits the road, but I hope someone will be back. I hope all of them will be back. Um, I'll, uh, I'll get this out, I'll get this recording out uh, pretty soon. Um, next episode, it's the Middle Ages. Um, I'm hoping to send you guys um, a sort of long chapter from this really, I may, I may actually send you all the stuff I've scanned and then just say only read chapter three. There's this amazing book by Elizabeth Wharton about the origin of theme parks. And uh, it, um, it starts with this fascinatingly bizarre phenomenon of Jerusalem replica cities. That after the pilgrimage routes are cut off following the belligerence of all the Crusades, um, different Christian countries start making Jerusalem, little miniature Jerusalems that people can do their pilgrimages to instead. And uh, Wharton, shows in her view, a direct line from this to Disneyland. So one of the things we're gonna get back into that I really minimized here is theories of space and the control of space. I've been very focused on people, but the control of space time is not exactly the same as control of people. And uh, that's what we're gonna be hitting on Monday. All right, fellow humans, thanks so much for sticking with it. We'll see you Monday. And I dreamed I was dying. I dreamed that my soul rose unexpectedly. And looking back down at me, smiled reassuringly. And I dreamed I was flying. Up above, my eyes could clearly see the Statue of Liberty sailing away to sea, and I dreamed I was flying.
For the common sheep they call the Mayflower We come on the ship that sailed the moon We come in the ages most uncertain hours And sing an American truth Oh, and it's alright It's alright, it's alright You can't be forever blessed Still tomorrow's gonna be another working day Trying to get some rest That's all I've tried To get some 